Welcome to the Speaking From Our Hearts podcast. In this edition, we'll be talking about many aspects of life, particularly health, relationships and wealth-related topics, all from a heart-centred approach. Your host, Paul Lowe, has a long and successful history of helping others through his coaching and mentoring, as well as his many charitable initiatives. He's been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from challenging backgrounds. Paul is the author of the books Mastering the Game of Life from Pain to Purpose and Speaking from Our Hearts. Welcome, listeners, to this Mastering Life podcast. In fact, there's the first deliberate error of the day because we're not actually mastering life. We are speaking from our hearts. And um, on that basis, it's my immense pleasure to welcome back a gentleman called Mark Gober from the United States of America. You might recall that Mark was on a previous episode where we discussed his book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. And uh, as I say, Mark's rejoining us now. We want to dig down into the the subject of consciousness in a more more generic way. So without further ado, Mark, a very, very warm welcome to the episode. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Excellent. So if we can start, um, Mark, by um, just recapping, really, give us a brief recap of of your book. Uh, As I say, we touched upon it the last time. We did an episode around it. And then to upside down thinking for the benefit of the listeners. Can you share a, a brief recap, please, Mark? Sure. So the, the book centers and really a lot of my thinking these days centers around the topic of consciousness. When I say consciousness, the way I think about it is that it's our subjective inner experience or awareness. So when I say that I am speaking to you, Paul, that I is what I mean by consciousness. It's not a physical thing. It's purely subjective, but it's really my identity. And what my book explores is whether that sense of consciousness, which we all have, anyone listening to this conversation has a consciousness, where does it come from? And I was very surprised to learn in my research that even Science Magazine, a very mainstream outlet in science, has said that this is the number two question that remains in all of science, which is how is it that a brain could produce consciousness? Because the brain is a physical thing in our body, but our consciousness, you can't touch it even if you tried to. It's not physical. That's the big question. And my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, says that we're asking the wrong question, that the consciousness that we all experience is not coming from our body. And so our identity is actually not our body, but our identities are our consciousness. And the way that I arrive at this, which we won't cover as much today, is the scientific evidence for things like psychic or intuitive abilities, and also the notion that when our body dies, Our consciousness doesn't cease to exist. It simply transitions into a new form. So this is a very powerful idea, going back to the idea of identity. If our identity is not our body, but if our body is just kind of the vehicle for experiencing things, I think it can be extremely helpful in many different areas of life. Yeah, absolutely. Just sort of uh, flying off into a very brief and slight tangent, Mark, you said it was the number two big question in science. What, uh, as a matter of interest, is the number one? The number one question is, what is the universe made out of? Right. And the answer, I would argue, is consciousness. So the conventional view in science today, which I'm challenging and a number of other scientists are challenging, is that the brain creates consciousness, or more basically, that physical matter creates consciousness because the brain's made out of atoms. What I am arguing is that it's the reverse, that consciousness is primary, and everything in this world that we see is actually coming from consciousness. Wow. 
Yeah. And that's interesting, Mark, isn't it? Because you mentioned, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, the scientists of this world, but you're actually not, uh, by your own admission, a scientist, are you? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm not a scientist. I, I summarize the research of scientists, and that's what I do in my book, and into Upside Down Thinking. However, my background is, is in business. I started my career in investment banking, working in New York uh, during the financial crisis with a firm called UBS, which is a global investment bank. And for the last nine years or so, I've been with a firm called Sherpa Technology Group, and I'm based in Silicon Valley, in California. And we advise businesses, typically tech businesses, on their business strategy, their technology strategy, and also on their patents and innovations. So there's obviously still, you know, within that that uh, remit, Mark, a lot of an, an analytical work that goes off. So there's a kind of commonality there, isn't there, in terms of, as I say, analysis and research? Yeah, absolutely. Writing the book in many ways felt like a culmination of lots of work that I've done, both in the business world, but also in my undergraduate days. I studied at Princeton. I had to write a thesis there. That's part of the graduation requirement. So that was a research-based project. And in my professional life, because I deal so much with technologies and new innovations, I'm constantly looking at how scientists and innovators have improved over what used to be the status quo. And in many cases, they had to think differently. So I'm familiar with this topic, and I've sort of applied it to a new area. And the area here is consciousness. And it happens to be that this is a, a, an important topic as we think about our existence, which underlies everything that we do throughout the day. So to me, it's, it sounds scientific, but actually... It's just this is a very basic question that we need to live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, Mark, from what I understand about it, since this has come to the fore, if you like, is the, you know, once we can get our heads around this, the implications, the knock-on effects are absolutely earth-shattering, aren't they? They are. Like I said, it gets to a question of identity. And this is why I think that in some scientific circles, there's resistance to it. Even when I first started this research in 2016, I resisted it personally because I think there's a tendency to say, well, that we understand reality to some degree. And what I was learning was that my previous understanding of reality was completely off. And that was a disorienting experience to have to say, wait, whatever I thought about my identity in my life, I have to rethink all of that. But once one does it, it is extremely powerful. And it, 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 I think it's a very uplifting message in the end, which is actually one of the reasons I was resistant to it because I said, wow, this, is, this sounds really convenient and com comforting. Maybe it's just a rationalization. But the more I looked, the more the science pointed in the direction of a, of a reality that seems to be very comforting. Yeah, and I can imagine, Mark, that it certainly put the metaphoric cat amongst the pigeons with this uh, this radical challenging of, as you, as you say, of convention. Yeah, the mind uh, the mind boggles at that prospect. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I want to do is kind of put this fascinating uh, topic of consciousness in the context of it being the, as I say, the ultimate wealth, because if we can come to terms or even remotely come to terms with this concept and you know, even your thinking about it lives on, you know, after death, uh, Mark, you know, the ramifications and, and the the benefits, as, as I keep saying, are going to be immense. But I want to put that in the context of wealth, if I can sort of uh, narrow it down a bit, if that's the, the right way to look at it. Because as when we spoke off, off air last time, Mark, my massive passion, my vocation 
is to look at things and radically change things and then to use your terminology, the status quo of how things are, but with a quite a specific sort of focus and people that find themselves hopeless and um, sorry, hopeless, homeless, should I said, who apologize for that, seem to be having quite a few slips today. But um, as is the authenticity listeners of these podcasts, they won't be edited. You know, we say what we mean. And if there's a perceived error in there, that's fine. So within that market, how can we use all this knowledge and these breakthroughs and this groundbreaking, these insights for the betterment of, of people that are struggling, you know, and, you know, particularly, as I say, the passion for me personally is people that are homeless and on, on addictions and, you know, without hope and all this kind of real, real earthy, life challenging stuff. So I know and I appreciate it's a massive swing from our sort of initial conversation when we spoke about your book and end upside down thinking. But I want to steer it down this road if I can, Mark, because I want to tap into your undoubted, really detailed knowledge and research to say, look, you know, there's something special happening here. But my my more simpler question, actually probably more complex question, Mark, is, OK, that's great. How do we get it out to, you know, the people on the streets where we can really, really, really make a difference? I think a place to start is the issue of identity, which I mentioned before. Because when, when we think about limitations or things that make us upset while we're in this physical form, I think they're always related to the implicit belief that we are the body and the body has limitations. There's always limitations for the body because the body has a, a, a limited lifespan. The body needs things. Um, there's a sense of lack, whether it's wealth or otherwise. But if our identity is the consciousness that everyone has, no matter whether you're a king or someone who does not even have a home, we all have consciousness and we all are made of consciousness under this paradigm that I'm discussing. Mm. So I think it's an extremely empowering idea because whatever the physical manifestation that we are living in or is around us, that becomes secondary if we tap into the consciousness that we all have. So I think it really is, it's, it's hard because our eyes seem to show us a world that seems like it's out there. That's the way we interpret everything around us. But what I'm describing is a world where everything is within our own consciousness. Mm. So just that flip of perception, anybody, you're conscious right now, where is that awareness coming from? Is that awareness your identity? And, if, and I think there's something to it where you kind of tap into the, the fact that that's your own identity rather than whatever physical situation you're in. Now, that doesn't magically change the physical situation, but it changes the way that you're perceiving it. And I think it's a subtle shift that over time can be extremely helpful. Would a good stepping stone be insights and raising awareness around non-duality, for example? To me, the non-duality is a very comprehensive picture of reality. And that's where I lean. And that's kind of what I was just describing, that everything that we see in the physical world, we interpret it as being out there and separate from us. And that means there's a me and then there's a me compared to everything else out there. And when I say me in, in this context, it's typically just the, my, me and my body. And then there's a world outside. That creates a sense of separation and comparison. Whereas if we take, undertake the non-dual perspective, which can be difficult to grapple with because it's, it's so counter to how we interpret the world with our eyes, 
but it's one where everything is just consciousness and there's no separation. All that we're experiencing is just diversity of the same consciousness that we're all a part of. That would be more of the non-dual perspective. And that is one that, that creates more of a sense of equality rather than a sense of lack. Right. Okay. Because, you know, prior to come on air, uh, coming on air, Mark, I've, I've, you know, sort of given this quite a lot of thought and, you know, what are those stepping stones? Uh, and obviously there's a, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity in my, in my questioning and, and in, in my statements really, because I'm very much of that non-duality path. And so I'm thinking, okay, so looking at it and understanding it through my eyes, I kind of see that, that duality insight or clarification mark as being key to to then going on to something which is even far far deeper and far more profound you know we keep saying about the implications of this you know that if it can be taken out to the streets uh, it's going to be immense and, and literally life-changing life-changing doesn't actually scratch the surface in terms of you know describing its its immense potential but as i say just taking that back on track mark the for me it's around the duality and understanding that you know this this separation that we go through life as the self capital s the higher self and 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 the self who we perceive we are and i think for me one of the great proponents of this is rupert spire where he advocates the the mind the body and world is you know is the perception and you know the other half of, of who we truly are. And so by using that bridge to get that basic understanding, and you're right, Mark, I mean, that's a whole new sort of topic and philosophy in its own right, but I'm just trying to make this really simple, um, well, <laughs> as much as can be on <laughs> on something of this nature, to almost, I won't say naively, but optimistically find a solution to say, okay, we've, we've found the golden nugget. I mean, I'm so passionate about it, but that's why I said at the, the top of the, the conversation, Mark, I think my, I'm far too, I'm too emotional about it to see any objectivity. So, you know, it's great to have yourself on here to, to provide that sort of these stepping stones, these insights and that uh, certainly that objectivity. So are you saying then, Mark, that really by, adopting, if I can be allowed to call it as a strategy for the purpose of this, that that non-duality strategy or philosophy or stepping stone is not probably the way to go in terms of what I was hoping to achieve or or I'm hoping to achieve in the bigger picture of how do we take this fascinating breakthrough onto the streets? Yeah, well, I think it can be if it, it takes some deep introspection of really looking at our own experience with which I think Rupert Spira does a great job of. And he has a number of exercises that he speaks of. And and I'll mention one that I've kind of adapted where we can look at an object and this is to experience the topics that you and I have just been discussing for the last few minutes, because they can extreme, they can feel very abstract in the beginning and to make it tangible. I think it starts to chip away at our old systems of interpreting the world it's not necessarily an overnight process where all of a sudden you think about things in the way that we're describing and then life changes that instant. It can be a gradual shift. So that's an important point. But if we take the example of a tree, you're looking at a tree, and I actually use this in the final chapter of my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. I'm looking at a tree and I I say, wow, that tree is over there because that's how I interpret it. There's a me here, there's a tree over there. But if I close my eyes and say, where... Think about 
where the tree is occurring when I'm visualizing it. It's always being seen within our field of consciousness, if that makes sense. The seeing of the tree happens right here, even though the tree seems like it's over there. My experience of it is right here within my consciousness. Yes. That's where the seeing of it occurs. So that's part of the experience of the tree. But then I say, well, what happens if the branch breaks on the tree and it makes a sound over there? If you close your eyes and think about where your experience of the sound is, the sound is experienced within your field of consciousness also. If you go over to the tree and touch it and say, well, I can touch the tree and I'm touching it like kind of over there. If you close your eyes and experience the touching of the tree, you realize that the sensation of the touching is also something that's experienced in your field of consciousness. And the same could go with smelling it. If the tree has an odor, you smell it, but you're smelling it right here in your field of consciousness, not over there. So you realize that all of your perceptions of the tree, anything you can come up with, it always occurs within your field of consciousness. In other words, the tree itself can be thought of, to use Rupert Spira's term, as a modulation of consciousness, but it's made of consciousness. So this is the undoing of the perceptual system. What our eyes show us and the way our brain interprets it is there's a tree over there. There's a me here, a tree there. But when we look at it from this perspective, we realize every experience of the tree occurs right here within our consciousness. Yeah, and that was very well put. I, uh, I, that's, that's clarified. Uh, I think it made it a lot simpler. So for me, Mark, that very simple, relatively simple explanation is and would be quite a strong stepping stone. What other stepping stones do you feel we would need to have in place to make, and as you say, I mean, it's going to be a massive, massive shift of thinking. Uh, one would say it's almost going to be an end to upside down thinking. <laughs> what other stepping stones, Mark, would we, you know, I've just mentioned one there. They're undoubtedly because there's a massive, massive gulf and there's going to be a lot of, one would assume naturally, a lot of resistance to this this upside down thinking and this this radical thinking and oh yeah, but th- listen that that doesn't it's always been this way and it will always be that way and you know forever hold your tongue so to speak. W- what other insights are there, Mark, to to make that bridge? Because I feel the gulf is massive, but I feel that gulf needs to be bridged. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of like a chipping away, and there are a number of things that can be done. One is what I just described of looking at anything that appears to be external and really examining it and realizing that that external thing is always happening within us. That's our experience of it. So that's one, and that can be practiced throughout the day. And Rupert Spira has meditations to do this, but it really, anyone can do it. All you have to do is is look around and, and realize that what's out there is actually in here. And there, there are other exercises that have been used by many sages or people who have kind of reached states of enlightenment. So Ramana Maharshi is one example who was kind of a non-dual teacher. He reached very high states of consciousness. And when I say reach high states of consciousness, there, there are people throughout history who have reached states of extreme peace where the external world shifts around them and they seem to be peaceful within no matter what. And that's really what it seems like everyone is striving for, no matter who you are in society, people are striving for a sense of lasting peace and happiness. And individuals like Ramana Maharshi and others throughout history have gotten to these states where they have been able to be almost immune to what happens externally. And it's an incredible thing. And then at that point, it's not about how many dollars you have. The wealth is, is the state that people experience. 
this extreme state of peace. That is the wealth on its own. So what Ramana Maharshi suggested in his path, there are a number of paths that people have recommended and probably suits different people in different ways. His question was, who am I? And he would ask that over and over again, who am I? And ask people to ask that of themselves. It goes back to identity. This can also be done throughout the day. Who am I? Am I this body, Mark? Am I my thoughts, Mark? Or am I that which is experiencing the body and the thoughts of Mark? That exercise then brings us to the level of our true consciousness. And I'll give you an analogy that I use in the book, which is from a philosopher named Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who says that all of reality is like a stream of water where water represents consciousness. Each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning we have boundaries so it seems like we're separate, but we're all made of the same consciousness. In the process of creating those boundaries, there is the sense of separation and then therefore the sense of lack in certain ways. So on the topic of wealth, the sense of lack of wealth is derived from this separation within the stream of consciousness. When we ask, who am I though? we realize that we are water in the stream and the water never leaves the stream and the water is connected to everything in the stream, no matter what the whirlpool is, looks like. So when we ask the who am I, we pull away from our individual whirlpool and we identify with the whole stream. And that, again, I think can be done just throughout the day, just in, in one's mind. You could do it like once an hour or something. to say, wait a second, I'm not the whirlpool. I'm not just the body. I am this much bigger thing. And it's these I think exercises are chipping away at the feeling of limitation, which probably at even at a subconscious level can feed into the sense of lack of wealth. I had a little wry smile there, Mark, as you was talking when I when I heard you say, "Who am I?" Because that took me back to when I uh, went to Colesbad um, on a on a shopper event, uh, and the first time I ever heard that question, and we were working in group exercises, and oh, this was about what far five years ago, something like that. And, um, you know, of course, we're all going into detail or, you know, I am male, you know, all these labels that we have on in a physical sense, you know, I'm male, I'm female, I'm, I've got dark hair, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm mid 40s, I'm middle aged, whatever, whatever, all these labels. And, and then to, you know, kind of on the debrief, get that insight of the answer is, uh, well, there's variations, obviously, but I think I am consciousness was the answer. That took some, certainly for me, and I think a lot of others, it took some, you know, some shifting to kind of, well, is it really that simple? And, and of course, uh, you know, I certainly believe now it is. But to use your terminology, Mark, it's took a lot of chipping away to get to that level of awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a practice. It really it becomes a practice. That What's nice about it is that anyone can do it, no matter how many dollars you have in the bank account. These are things that one can do in one's mind all day long or you know, at, at periodic times. I should clarify the, the statement, though, who am I, which is something that Ramana Maharshi it's mentioned often. It's a practice of self-inquiry, of asking oneself about your identity. There was a, a later person of, of high states of consciousness or kind of enlightened states, Dr. David Hawkins, who's written many books. One's called Power Versus Force. That's probably the most well-known, but he's written a number of others that talk more about reaching high states of consciousness in the way that he did. He wrote a book called Letting Go, which is a really important one. I think it's about the pathway of surrender, which can be, uh, that, that's something we could even talk about later in this conversation. But he says, 
who am I, the question, is actually limiting because the word who is personal. He thinks the question is what am I? Because if we say we're consciousness, then it, it, it removes the, the personalness from it. And, and even the personalness is alluding to the fact that we're a whirlpool. So if we remove the, the whirlpoolness, the individuality, and say that we're actually this bigger consciousness, even though we appear to be individual, that can be even more powerful. I was just thinking, um, Dr. David Hawkins, Mark, is he the one that created this hierarchy of consciousness when he gave, um, he kind of depicted it or of this, this sort of pyramid and at the top was a thousand where that is total enlightenment and at the bottom, right at the bottom, I think there was um, a rating of around 20, which was in the red and it, and it denoted guilt and um, and all that kind of, you know, low frequency stuff because he spoke about it in energetic terms. Have I got the right guy? Yes, yes. He's most well known for his, his scale of consciousness. That's what it's called, where he uses a kinesiologic muscle testing uh, method to evaluate levels. But he himself, I, I think in when, when people hear of David Hawkins, the first thing they think of is his scale of consciousness and muscle testing. But that came much later in his life. What happened first is that he reached very high states of enlightenment and went through some difficult times personally to get there. And many of his books are about reaching those states. And that's what I'm really focused on when I speak about David Hawkins is the way in which he got to those states. And he was also a psychiatrist. At one point, he was the most, the most popular psychiatrist or had the largest psychiatric practice in the United States. So he's a medical doctor who had seen all kinds of problems for people. And he himself had his own issues that he worked through and reach states that we would typically call enlightenment. So it's a very unique combination to hear a medical doctor speaking about this from a psychiatric standpoint. And typically what he sees as, as the underlying problem, no matter who comes to him with an issue or no matter what issue he faced, whether it was health or lack of wealth or whatever, was a, this is my, my interpretation of his work, is that it, it comes from a, a desire to control and a lack of surrender. When he talks about surrender, it's not a weak thing, like I'm just giving up. It's a realization and a humility that the individual's mind is extremely limited relative to the grandness of the universe. And the human limited mind cannot know at a linear level what's actually going on. And when you realize that, you say, wait a second, I have no idea what's happening, even though I think I do. And when you do that, you kind of dissolve into the broader stream and allow the stream to take you a bit. So it's not a totally passive outlook, but it's a more passive state than the one that wants to just control everything. It's more of, it's an active state, but it's more of an allowing. And that can be really liberating for someone in any part of the society to just let go a bit and allow things to happen and unfold around oneself. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because a couple of hours ago, Mark, I was, um, I, I had a meeting with a client and a young lady that's um, just, let's say, experiencing one or two challenges. And, and, I, and I ask her the simple question, which kind of reinforces what you're talking about. And I ask her what she perceives are the most three important words in the world. And of course, that's very subjective. But interestingly, as, and you know, this is, this is a massive generalization. I haven't actually captured it in terms of statistical analysis. Um, but I know from the, the countless conversations, uh, when I ask that, you know, what are the three most important 
words in the world and invariably, Mark, the answer that will come back is, I love you. And Mm -hmm. for me, I would always challenge that respectfully and say, then, you know, no, it's let it go because by letting it go, you know, we're just clearing out so much stuff and we know it's not that simple uh, or maybe it is. Um, But that's, as you say, another conversation, another time. But for me, once you've kind of cleared the decks or or cleared the metaphoric garden of the weeds, you've then got that sort of room to replace with more vibrant, positive, self-serving energy. So I always kind of I have to check myself, Mark, when I hear those those great three words or those great two words about let go, let it go. You know, it just lights me up because I know from my own earthy, practical experience how profound and uh, you know, beneficial that, you know, that, that can be. It can be. And, and I'll give an example from David Hawkins, book, letting go when he talks about desire. And if we're speaking about the context of wealth, I mean, that, that is a type of desire that people have. He talks about having like desires are okay to have. And in any mystical tradition, there are debates about whether we, we should have desires or not, or whether desires are actually the, our downfall. But what I think that the subtle distinction is that Desires are okay as long as we're not bound to the outcome. So if I say, I want this car, and if I don't get it, I'm going to be upset. That's like being bound to getting the car. That's dangerous because you've set up a situation where if you don't get the thing that you want, then you're going to be upset. There's another way to do it, however, which is not really how we're taught, but, but Hawkins and other people talk about it, which is to have the desire, basically put out the intention, and then forget about it and allow things to happen. Maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. But what he found in his life, especially as he reached high states of consciousness, and I hear this anecdotally from other people, is that those things start to come into one's life, not all the time, but many times, when one just puts out the desire with no attachment to whether or not it actually occurs. I absolutely, on a personal level, embrace this. And I've just been making a couple of notes as you've been speaking there, Mark, um, on the attachment one. And I've, ri- I've actually written Nottingham Forest Football Club because I had a, a massive attachment to that. You know, it was about a belief. It was about identity. Um, and I created this identity when I was a young kid based on raw, and I mean raw, survival. It was fight or flight. Shall I take my own life because I can't cope anymore? And I'm talking as a kid of 13 and a half years of age or mm. no, or shall I carry on and carry on fighting? And something happened that day, and it was the 23rd of March, 1974, and it was five past seven in the evening. Remember it vividly. And that was the day, Mark, that I consciously, with a little help from outside forces uh, that I still think about to this day, I decided to end it because I couldn't cope because of all the violence and the abuse that I was getting at the hands of my stepfather. And something happened that day. Something profound happened. Now, for me, that attachment, just to bring it back into that context, was that all my beliefs, because I'd lost the will to live because of, you know, the treatment, the barbaric treatment of my stepdad towards me and my mother, you know, with the violence, the cruelty, the every, you name it, it, it was just barbaric beyond description. Of course, as a kid growing up in the 70s, there was none of this kind of safeguarding and stuff like you get nowadays. It was just shut up and get on with it was the attitude. Uh, the only person that was there to try and protect me, and she did the best she could, 
was my mother, but it was no good taking it to the authorities because in those days, Mark, it was like that. Well, children should be seen and not heard. And if you've got a good hiding, well, you must have done something to deserve it. And if you don't stop crying, I'll give you another one. You know, mm. and all, all this kind of ridiculous way of carrying on. But my attachment, Mark, to bring it back to what you were saying, was around that I created a belief system. I needed something to believe in. And that was my football club, that one day I would... I would play for Nottingham Forest Football Club. Mm. And that gave me a raison d'etre. Um, I didn't make it. I wasn't good enough. And that shattered that. But the point is, because they'd lost two games in the space of 48 hours, my whole sense of thinking and attachment, to keep using that word, was how dare you betray me? I love you with all my art, Nottingham Forest. And you've betrayed me. You've, you've devastated, you've shattered my world when all I had was you. You've just left me, you've abused my trust. And, you know, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm giving a different insight now, but obviously these weren't the words. But, you know, th these kind of capture the emotions and the thought processes, Mark, at the time uh, on the 23rd of 1974. And, but that attachment. And so what I'm trying to say is, is actually massively reinforce the, the correct point, in my view, that you gave around this, you know, if you put your power in something outside of your control, you're going to be left very, very, very disappointed. Very disappointed. Yeah, and it, it goes back to what you were talking about around non-duality. When you put your happiness into something external, you're putting it into something that's not real. Because as we discussed, everything that we perceive as being out there, once we examine it, we realize it's just within our own consciousness. So it's kind of an illusion to put our stake into anything outside of our own awareness. So that can be a dangerous thing when we are attached to that outcome. So it's a subtle technique, really, which is to have the, the desire for a state, but not be attached to what happens to it. To say, okay, if the team wins or loses, I'm okay either way. That's, it's hard to do that, but it can be really, this is how people achieve these states of, of high states of consciousness or enlightenment. And I think it's where lasting peace and happiness can ultimately come from. From a pure point of view, Mark, I totally agree with that. I think where I'm at personally is what I allow to do. If I feel angry about something, I allow that emotion to hit me. I don't deny it. I don't suppress it. But what I have learned, Mark, is I don't allow it to hang around for too long, by the way. You know, it's like you've come knocking on the door. You've told me that you're not happy about this situation, that's fine. I've listened to you. Now, cheerio. Um, because by doing that, Mark, I feel as if I've let that energy pass into me, pass through me, and it's not going to come again. Whereas I know from past experiences where I, I suppressed these things and I was in total denial, the paradox of that was I was actually massively attached, but I, was, I wouldn't recognize or accept that I was attached because I didn't understand attachment anyway but learning to let go. So one of the other things, Mark, that just kind of just building on that was taking it onto your, if it's meant to be as a strategy, is very much I try and work with people now to say, and it's a very almost cliched statement that I've, that I've come up with, and if it's meant to be, it will show. If it's not, let it go. And that's easy <laughs> to remember. But what I mean by that is like, just, okay, let's use an alternative three words. You know, these frameworks that we use, um, and it's strategy, let go. So your strategy is whatever it is. Okay, you've put it in place, what you've called intention, Mark. Okay, that's what it is. I'm going to do that. I've put it out there. 
you know what? Because this third party's involved, it's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do. If it goes in my favour, great. If it doesn't go in my favour, great. So, you know, these insights, I think, I mean, you know, I think this is the beauty of, of having a conversation, what was initially around the topic of, you know, consciousness, the ultimate wealth. And I think in a broader context, it still massively is. But because it's so broad, we can go off on these weird and wonderful tangents and and, and I believe share some real good sort of practical advice for, for listeners. I, I think it's fascinating. I'm I'm so grateful, Mark, for, you know, yourself and, and other people that come on and, and, you know, and share these invaluable insights, which I know for a fact are positively uh, impacting people's lives. So, you know, thank you very much for that. I really, really do appreciate that. No, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we're discussing these topics because these little tweaks in behavior can over time chip away at the old paradigm and can be extremely helpful for people. But there were two things that I wanted to add on to what you said. You, you made some great comments there. The first is about feeling emotions and not resisting the emotions. So let's say anger comes up. There's a tendency to resist the anger. And going back to Dr. David Hawkins, who again was a psychiatrist and dealt with this all the time. If someone would come to him and say, I'm really angry about X, Y, and Z, he would say, well, you're not angry enough. In other words, his method was to not only feel the emotion, but to try to experience as much of it as you could until it ran out. And what he finds is that when you experience the fear or the anger or whatever it is, you dive into that emotion and don't let yourself leave it and ask for more and more of it, even with physical pain, then it eventually dissipates. So whatever kind of energy is stored up that's behind it, it leaves. So that's an interesting technique because it's very counter to what we experience. If we have a negative emotion or feeling, we want to kind of suppress it, and that probably only makes it stronger. So that's, that's one technique I think can be valuable for anyone in any kind of pain or unpleasant situation. Uh, but also you, you, you talked about kind of like letting the outcomes happen and not being attached to, to what happens. I studied psychology in my undergrad years at Princeton, and I focused on behavioral economics and judgment and decision-making. So how people make decisions and how people think about decisions and some of the errors that typically come up. And there's one that I often think back to. It's known as affective forecasting errors. In other words, we are not very good at predicting things that we will like and not very good at predicting things that we will dislike in the future. So if you ask someone how they will feel in the future when they have a certain success, the way they end up actually feeling once they achieve the success is very different from how they thought they would feel. And they end up feeling much less good than they thought. And the, the reverse is true too, where if it's something they think would be a terrible catastrophe, when it happens, it ends up being much less bad. So all of this is to say that our attachments to an outcome are based typically on an improper forecasting of how we will actually feel. So when we realize that we have these errors in our judgment and decision making, then we will, I think, be much less attached to whatever we quote unquote think is the really important outcome. And even we can look at it from a different perspective. Let's say someone gets injured and they're unable, let's say they're a, a competitive athlete and they're unable to play because they're injured. But because of that injury, they end up taking up a new hobby that leads them in a totally different avenue in life that ends up changing their whole life. Was the injury bad or good? Well, when the injury happens, you probably say, this is terrible, I'm not playing my sport. But in the end, it, must, it has a much broader positive effect that you could never have envisioned when the accident happened. 
So this is all what I'm trying to do is chip away at the, the judgmentalism that is so easy for us to undertake, which is that we like to judge a situation and, and call it good or bad. And that leads us to attach to what we think is good or bad. But when we realize there's so much beyond our own control or what we could even know, then it helps us let go, I think, of, of trying to attach to an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, the risk of oversimplifying. It is it is about letting go. I mean, I feel so passionate about this because of the way it's changed my own life, Mark. And, and I, and I kind of get frustrated because I want to get this out there because I had somebody say to me, re- well, relatively recently, it's like, Paul, you've gone really soft, you know, because I've come from the streets and the ghettos and, you know, and it's like you've gone really soft and you talk about love and you've gone all fluffy. It's like, what's happened to you? And I said, do you know what? We have choices in life. Now, yes, I've come from the same backyard as you. I'm no better and I'm no worse than you, I, you know, whoever I am. But what I've done, I've made some choices and we all, we all have that ability to make those choices. And let me tell you about your perception of who you think I am. And it's about this guy that uses this soft, flowery language now about love and forgiveness and gratitude and all this kind of stuff. And I said, but you know what? Let me tell you what the alternative is, shall I? It's called darkness. It's called despair. It's called living on the edge. It's called looking over your shoulders. It's called having mental breakdowns. It's called addiction. It's called violence. I tell you what, you've got a choice. I know which one I've chose. And you know, when you put it in that practical term, Mark, you know, and, and I'll say to the guy, look, never underestimate the fact that should the need arise, I can still put the 10 ounce gloves on if that's what's needed. But I choose not to because it's not it's not what's needed because there is an alternative way. And that's why, Mark, from a personal leverage and, and, and sort of inspirational point of view, th- this stuff just fascinates me beyond description because I know from real, real you know, first-hand experience, how, how life-changing it can be. And, and I repeat and kind of almost make no apologies for repeating that we must get this stuff out onto the streets. I don't know how yet. I haven't figured that bit out, hence my conversation <laughs> with experts like yourself. But, you know, watch this space. Well, yeah, I think getting the ideas out and, and it's, it's, it's chipping away. That's the best way I can describe it of the old way of thinking. And, and I think you said it very well, which is that the alternative is not a positive picture of life and reality. And I can say that for myself. Even when I would achieve things that I thought were, were good or wealth in whatever way I would consider to be wealth or abundance, it would all of a sudden not be good enough after a certain amount of time. And there's another term that I do remember from my psychology days of studying judgment and decision-making. It's known as the hedonic treadmill. And the notion is that when we achieve something that we like, that we think is so important, we end up actually not moving anywhere. That becomes our new baseline level of happiness. And then we just have the next thing that we're striving for that we're attached to. So you never actually get anywhere. It's like running on a treadmill. So that is, that's an important thing to keep in mind because there can be this tendency to say, well, once I get to this other state, then I'm going to be happy. But once you get there with that attitude, then there's probably going to be something else that comes up. And it's, it's a cycle over and over again that I've experienced personally. And that that has led me to, to explore these ideas, you know, combined with the science that I've looked at. But you, you, you talked about like love and compassion, and, and those ideas were not ones that I really understood or bought into. And I just want to mention one topic, and we can talk about any of any of it as, as you see fit. Um, but 
In my book, I write about the near-death experience. And these are instances where a person is nearing death, like sometimes they're in cardiac arrest, they're having some kind of serious trauma to the body. And what's sometimes reported is that the person's consciousness leaves the body and they're seeing things in the room that are later reported as being accurate, sometimes from a vantage point of being above their body. So these are kind of some of the clues that we have where some scientists are saying that consciousness is existing outside the body. What is sometimes reported or very often reported is it's called a life review. And this has been reported throughout the ages, but because our, our medical technology has gotten better in the last few decades, we have more and more people that are coming back from, they're basically being resuscitated and they come back and they talk about the life review. I'll give you a story of, of a man named Danian Brinkley, who I interviewed for my own podcast, which is being released in 2019. He's had four near-death experiences. The first one, he was electrocuted. He has, he's had two in open-heart surgery and one during brain surgery. Each time in his, life review, in his near-death experience, he had a life review. He went to other realms. A lot of crazy things happened. But he had a life review where he experienced his life kind of in a flash, reliving all of the old events, but living those events through the eyes of people that he affected. And in his case, he was a, a Marine, fought in Vietnam and killed many people. During his life review... He experienced the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes, but not only that, he experienced the pain of the children who wouldn't have a father anymore because of what he did. So when he came back into his body, for him, wealth was not about material gains at all. What he realized is that it's all about how we treat each other, so his life changed dramatically. He became a hospice volunteer, and his life reviews improved. So he started from the beginning of, of his life in each life review, but in the the interim period, he noticed major positive changes because of the joy that he was bringing people. And that's what he experienced in the life review. I mean, that kind of brings me on to something I made a note of, Mark, as, as you was talking again around. And then, and it's, you know, yet again, it's almost a, uh, it was certainly an old adage of, you know, life and wealth or success being an inside out job. And it just struck me that what we're talking about, you know, these external perceived silver trinkets of oh yeah nice flashy car you know new house this that i mean that's great that's nice stuff but it's superficial and it's almost kind of the icing on the cake because from what i understand and what i believe in um we have to be careful about our beliefs obviously but is actually without that internal compass of this stuff that we're talking about it's just stuff and it'll come and go it's it's superficial, isn't it? I mean, that you know, am I oversimplifying that? Am I being too subjective in that? No, I think you're right. The reason that these ideas are difficult to grapple with sometimes is that we are looking forward to the things that we that seem superficial on the surface, but we still have an inner belief that once we achieve those things, everything's going to be better. And that is the belief that we don't we don't realize that's not true until we get there. And we identify it. But sometimes we don't because we say, well, yeah, I got it. But then there's this shiny object over there that I'm going to chase. And then we get that. And then there's the next one. So it's a, sometimes we have to kind of almost leave our, our personal body and observe things as a third party and say, what's going on here? Are these things, these things that I'm striving for, these kind of superficial things outside of myself, are those the things that are actually going to make me happy? And once we start to question that, then these ideas we're talking about, I think they really open up. Something I picked up on, uh, Mark, probably about 10 minutes ago when I touched on the, you know, the emotional side, the love 
and you alluded to the fact that you know you'd not kind of been there with with your book or with your concepts is there any reason for that is that deliberate or you know give give us an insight into that if you will well, it, it's something that does come up with my book. I mean, what I, what I was referring to is that before my research, right, sorry. Um, those ideas just didn't make sense to me beyond just kind of evolutionary explanations that, oh, well, we just have these experiences because it's part of what helps us survive to reproduce. Whereas now it seems like, especially when people describe altered states of consciousness where the brain is like less active and we're experiencing the broader stream, this theme of love and compassion is something that comes up over and over again, where it, it's at the point where it seems like those emotions are actually the natural states of the stream of consciousness. It's just, those are kind of characteristics of the stream of consciousness. And therefore, because that's our identity, those are important things to be considering. Whereas before I didn't look at it that way. Thank you for that clarification. Mark. I, I, I was obviously, uh... I got that sort of cross-threaded a little bit, but I think that's a great way to put it because you know, for me, sometimes the almost the oversimplified um, approaches and language I use to try and help people away from pain is, you know, and I'll give you a very black and white example because black and white was, and is, you know, was my world for many, many, many years. Uh, and I know, you know, people that are struggling at times is their world, and this concept of grey doesn't exist. And so what I talk about now is this very simplistic, you know, and it's all about choices. And I do believe this. You have fear or you have love. Choose wisely. Set your intention wisely. Not saying it's going to happen overnight. Click your fingers and the world's a beautiful place because that ain't going to happen. But conversely, it can happen, which is a bit of a contradiction. You know, it's all about the power of beliefs, as we know. But it's this whole sort of insight and these challenge, these simplistic challenges, these polarizations, Mark, where I think, you know, to use your terminology or great two words of chipping away. And that's, you know, for me, by using simple language and simple frameworks and simple concepts, we can get that message across. Because, you know, going back to the top of this conversation, it's an immense area and one that de absolutely deserves very, very, very significant attention and respect. But, you know, as I said, you know, for me personally, Mark, my crusade now, vocation, call it what you will, adjectives abound, is to keep getting those bridges from people like yourself and, okay, let's get this out there. Let's get it out there. You know, and I know I keep repeating that, listeners, but, you know, there again, make no apologies for that because this is some some fantastic stuff that we're we're, we're starting to uncover. Yeah, it's it's absolutely life changing, and I'm glad you re-emphasized the point that it it might not happen the the instant that someone makes a, a mental shift like this. But it's a chipping away, and it can be done very simply. Like you can set reminders for yourself, maybe every day when you wake up, right before you go to bed, and maybe right before you eat a meal, to say whether it's an alert on your phone or you just remember to do it. Of what's my identity? Who and what am I? Am I consciousness? Am I letting go? You can just kind of think through these ideas that we're talking about, and it starts to pull our awareness away from just the body and into this broader concept of the stream of consciousness rather than just the individual whirlpool. And I think over time, just based on what I've seen, that over time that can start to have just positive effects on outlook, and because one's internal state is really all that matters because there is no external then it's possible for what seems like the external to shift 
because all we're doing is shifting our internal. Well, before I conclude, I want you to, um, have you got anything to add to that, Mark? Yeah, just a brief point about happiness because it's related to wealth and wealth wealth is almost a, a euphemism for happiness. Like wealth is one avenue that someone might want to go down to get happiness. But ultimately, I think the person is just looking for happiness and wealth seems to be like a way of getting it. And there might be other ways that people look for it. The notion that happiness is out there versus in here, I, I can't stress that enough. What always occurs, the happiness is experienced in one's own personal state of consciousness. It's, that's a simple idea, but it's really profound. The happiness is never found in an external object, ever. If something happens that seems to be external, the happiness is always experienced within oneself. So that's super important. That, it's an empowering idea because that means we can shift to our own perceptions of things and experience more happiness. It makes happiness seem more like a choice rather than something that is just at the whim of things happening around us. And this is, again, why people like Ramana Maharshi, David Hawkins, people who have reached these high states, they are able to achieve peace regardless of what's happening around them to some extent. And that's, I think, what everyone is ultimately trying to do in life at some level is trying to achieve these states of lasting peace and happiness. And it just from what I found in my personal life and my research is that it, it can only be found within our own selves. And to me, that stems from a, a, an identification as consciousness, as the big stream, rather than identifying as the individual. Looking at the individual that I am as Mark, as kind of like a vehicle of experience, and because I, I am in the body Mark, so to speak, I'm having certain experiences, but I'm not identifying with it quite as much. And that is a, a very liberating way of looking at things that I think can, can help many people once, once you just like kind of sit down and really think about that. And that's why I talk about maybe having periodic points throughout the day or maybe a few during the week to just think about these concepts because it pulls you away from whatever stresses are, just seem like they're, they're insurmountable. This pulls you away from it and puts it into a new context. And that's, that's great. And, and, you know, and as you know, Mark, from the conversations, you know, that we've had, you know, my emphasis is, is always on the, you know, what are these practical insights? What are these practical tools that we can get out there? And I think, yeah, again, that's a great one to share. I'd like to conclude, Mark, if I may, by right at the top of this conver- podcast conversation, there was seemingly a slip where I said, welcome listeners to this Mastering Life podcast. Well, there's a bit of learning in there, listeners, if um, if I can be allowed to share, because what I'm going to say now is, isn't that a great metaphor for life that I made a mistake and I could have got angry and I could have got frustrated? But actually, what the reality is, take the learning from that and just move on. And so the learning for me probably comes in, you know, turning that mastering life thought that I introduced at the top of this, because that's originally what these these podcast episodes were called. So I'm still kind of in uh, autopilot there in that sort of welcome listeners to the mastering life. But actually, maybe I wasn't. Maybe there was something deep within me that made me say that to then be able to say to, to you listeners, and this is where I want to leave it, that... Mastering life starts by speaking from our hearts. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Mark, I thank you yet again from the bottom of my heart for what you've uh, 
you've you've shared with us today. Um, I think it's been absolutely amazing. Sincere gratitude to you for that. Well, thank you so much, Paul, and I hope this has been helpful to your listeners. Hearts, helping everyone achieve results towards success.